the text this morning is Romans 6, 1 to 14, on page 5 of the, uh, of the booklets. What should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, don't, don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. How are we? I want to start by telling you a little story about a young woman. She just turned 18 and finished her VCE exams and did really, really well. So she was about to go off to university and start a new life, leave her, her small country town and her church community. But the church community was fairly conservative, and so her parting present from her, her mum and dad was a book entitled A Breviary of Sins, a, a catalogue, an encyclopedia of, of, of what to do, or rather what not to do. And in a typical uh, teenage fashion, she opens it up and, and flicks through it and looks witheringly at her parents and says, well, where's the checklist at the back? Um, got some laughs. That might be a joke and a very bad one at that, but there is a real-life situation um, where this kind of thing comes out. It's a phenomenon known as Rumspringer. Does anyone know who the Amish are? So there's a few hands. Uh, if you've seen the 1980s movie Witness with Harrison Ford, you'll get an insight into that. But the Amish are a conservative Christian community in the United States, and they're Mennonites, so they're a branch of the Anabaptists. And the one thing that characterizes them is a shunning of the world, because the world is full of sin and evil, and so they seek to distance themselves. So they live an agrarian lifestyle, which essentially means they're farming-based communities, they have horses and carts, so they don't believe in cars. They don't have mobile phones and TV and modern music and all the trappings of modern Western life. And what happens when kids get to the age of about 16 is that they're considered too old to be disciplined by their parents, but because it's an Anabaptist community, they've not yet been baptised. So they're not yet part of the church community, so they're not disciplined by the church. It's kind of an age of discernment, and they get to experiment. They wear uh, Western clothes and listen to music and they get mobile phones and go to parties and so on and so forth and make that decision. Do they, with their eighth grade education, choose a farming life that shuns the Western world as evil or do they leave their communities and never get to see their families again? 
they're shunned by their community and enter into the wider world, which is, is viewed as sinful. So the church has always had a spectrum of views on what is sin and what isn't sin from a fairly um, legalistic and fundamentalistic point of view to a more liberal or progressive type. So, for example, I did a course on Christian counselling many years ago as part of my degree, and it was from what gets called the reformed model, and, and their attitude was all counselling issues are sin issues. So you're not an alcoholic, you're a drunkard, for example. So I don't know what they do with PTSD, for example. They call them sinful because they've had a stressful experience. I think it's an inadequate model. It's fairly rigid. On the other hand, of course, we have people who psychologize sin away. It's just, you know, you, you had a bad relationship with your parents and you'll grow out of it kind of thing. Or it's not really sin. You know, we water things down. So how do we get sin right? Well, that's the topic of, of the sermon this morning. So today we look at Paul's understanding of our relationship with sin and his logic is breathtakingly simple. It's such an easy thing to follow that not even I can make it overly complex, as you'll see. It's compelling and I think it's encouraging. So once more, I have, I'm going to give you the big idea up front. And it can, it's, contains three clauses, which will be the three parts of my sermon. So we share in Christ's death, resurrection and new life. So we are dead to sin and alive to God and are free from sin's power. And that third point, we'll look at some imperatives or you know, how then shall we respond type thing. So, firstly, we share in Christ's death, resurrection, and new life. Verses 1 through 4. So Paul begins his discussion by saying, what then shall we say? And obviously, when he writes the letter, there's no verses, there's no chapter break. So he's talking about what we were talking about last week, which, if you remember, if you were here, was the fact that we're no longer on team Adam, in Adam, so we're no longer under the dominion of sin and death, but we're on team Christ, and that we have a, a divine vocation to have dominion. And in particular, I talked about this concept of abounding grace that Paul talks about that's very much greater than our, our sin and our sinful life. And it, when I was rereading that, I thought about Aladdin. Has anyone seen the movie Aladdin? And, and Robin Williams' wonderful, over-the-top character. You know when he, talk, this bit, he talks about the, the power that he has as a genie, but the fact that he lives in a, a little um, lamp? So it makes me think, superabounding grace, itty bitty sins. <laughs> and I don't mean to trivialise human sinfulness or her own deceivals, but the contrast is very stark in Paul, that you've got this amazing, abounding grace of God that can overcome anything in our lives and in the lives of anyone in the world and these tiny little sins in comparison. And the question he poses that I'm going to pull apart is a bit of an odd one. It's a bit of an odd way to ask it, don't you think? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And the response he gives, by no means, is apparently a very rare mode in the Greek. It's the optative mode for the, uh, the grammar uh, fans out there. It literally means, let it not be. Or maybe, God forbid, is a better translation. Shall we keep going on sinning? God forbid. Or perhaps the Bill and Ted translation of this verse. Shall we be bogus so God do can be most excellent to us? No way! Of course, we continue to say, yes, way, in the way in which we live. But that's the point of the sermon this morning. So Paul's response is, are you crazy? But of course, we do it. And perhaps not in the way in which he phrases it. It's worth pointing out, too, that if you read carefully, Paul's not saying, shall we continue sinning uh, in order that grace might be abound? Or shall we continue in our sins, plural, so that grace may abound? He's not talking about acts per se, but the being or the nature or the status behind that, that of sin itself. 
it, it's a bit like this, and, and since I know there are a number of AFL fans, let me try this. Say, uh, for example, you play football for Essendon, a controversial team in the past with the use of various supplements, etc., and then you get bought by um, Collingwood. Can I say Collingwood in this church? I'm not going to get me stoned. Yeah, there's a few Collingwood fans. Even got all their own teeth. Um, so let's, let's say Essendon starts footy practice at 10 o'clock and Collingwood, it's 9. You don't rock up at 10 to footy practice, do you? Because they've already done their drills. It's, it's halfway over. You don't rock up in your Essendon socks with your, your Collingwood you know, top on because you're meant to wear the uniform. Now that you've been bought by one team, you've gone from one team to another, you're meant to identify with the team which you're with in the way in which you do things, the practice, the team tactics, the team talk, the team song, the team uniform. You don't bear any semblance of that which you once were because you're now part of a new team. It's about identity and status. The other thing that's about the question that he poses, shall we continue in sin in order that grace may abound makes me think of the following. Um, personally, I'm the sort of person who, if I'm on the third floor of a building, I can't look out the window. In fact, even thinking about it, it's making my palms sweat. But imagine, for example, you wanted to become a tightrope walker. You know, the, the people at a circus who walk along a thin rope and they're, I don't know, how many feet above the ground. And if they fall off, of course, uh, it's not the fall that's a problem, it's the sudden stop. So obviously, as you're learning that craft, you'd start not very far off the ground, wouldn't you? So there's no real consequence if you fall off. But once you get to the actual height in which you need to operate and impress crowds, initially there will be a net, just in case you fall off. But the goal, of course, is to be able to walk without the net, so that when people come in and they fill up the circus tent, there's that tension, isn't there? Oh, what happens if they fall? There's no net beneath. But they've done this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times they've practiced. So you're walking the tightrope, even though there's a net there to catch you if you fall, but you don't take the attitude, oh, well, it doesn't really matter if I fall off, does it? Because the net's there. Because one day it's really going to matter. So when Paul asks, shall we continue in sin in order that grace may abound, we don't walk the tightrope so that if we fall off, you know, that's what nets are for, right, to catch us. In other words, Paul is saying that grace is not cheap grace, Yes, forgiveness in Christ, once you are in Christ, once you are saved, once you're on team Christ and not on team Adam, is if you like our safety net. God is not the stern God waiting for us to fail. He's the loving Father waiting to catch us when we fall. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace when he says, Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. But that, in fact, is not the way in which God's grace works. So there is a net there, the abounding grace of God that can overcome anything that you're going through or anything that you might go through in your life. But we're not to take it for granted. And I think that's what Paul's saying to us this morning in this passage. The other thing, as I said earlier, is that it's sin in the singular, not sins in the plural. He's talking about an attitude or a way or a shape of our lives. The word in the Greek and the word that's commonly used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew literally means missing the mark. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's referred to people who, um, what is it? It's um, a sling and a, a rock. 
talking about in the context in the verse of people who don't miss the mark. And it reminds me of a family trip to Cryle Castle. Has anyone been? It's pretty kitsch, is it not? It's pretty daggy, but it's good fun. And so uh, I went as a kid with my family and then my wife and I went when we first moved to Melbourne and then a few years ago we took our son. And one of the things they have is this undercover archery range. And so uh, Jake, I don't know, was about six or something like that at the time. So he had some help. Uh, and so the fellow who was, who was um, running the, the range helped him aim, and sure enough, he hit the target. Whereas yours truly, without any help whatsoever, hit the roof. <laughs> I've never been any good at archery. Uh, so I missed the mark. But when the Bible talks about sinners missing the mark, it's not talking about simply an inability or a lack of practice per se, but a lack of desire. And we're going to talk about desires towards the end of the sermon as Paul raises the issue of passions and desires. It's about basically not wanting to hit the mark because you'd rather aim somewhere else. And so not living in sin anymore is about changing our aim and aiming in a different direction. We'll talk more about that as, as things goes on. In verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about baptism. He says that, Do not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried by, uh, buried with him by baptism into death so that we might be raised. Baptism, of course, is a, a somewhat controversial topic at times in the church. Do you baptize children? Do you wait to get baptized as an adult, etc., etc.? I don't want to get into that this morning, okay? But it's very clear in the early church is that if you came to faith, you were baptized. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and Philip's walking along and hears him reading the Bible and he explains uh, to the Ethiopian eunuch what he's reading and he says, well, what's to keep me from being baptized? So there's this quote-unquote conversion experience and he's baptized. And baptism, of course, is a, a public declaration which to pick up on a point I was talking about last week means that the whole idea of salvation on the one hand is closely linked to being part of a church community and being part of the body of Christ or team Christ on the other. In other words, there's no such thing as a Christian. There's just Christians, if you get my meaning. Anyway, but quite regardless of whether you're baptized as a child or an adult, if you have faith in Christ, and this is associated with that baptism, then you're baptized into Christ's death and into his burial and his resurrection, so that we might walk in newness of life. <laughs> Makes me think about what happened in, in Thailand a little while ago. You know, those, those kids on the soccer team, and they go into this cave, and it rains, and the cave floods, and all of a sudden they're trapped. And there's absolutely nothing they can do for themselves. If they stay there, they're going to die. And so we, had, we saw the dramatic scene of the marvellous work of the, their special forces, who went in with the extra, extra oxygen tanks, and they had to sedate the kids, so there's, you know, they couldn't even really swim for themselves. And so the kids are taken underneath the water in the cave and then brought out again, literally into new lives, because I think a number of them have joined a, a Buddhist monastery. So in baptism, we're under the water, literally dying, and then being raised again to new life. So what then does it mean to walk in newness of life? Well, that's what Paul goes on to describe in verses 5 through 11. And I'm not going to say too much here, but there's a couple of ideas I want to pick up on. Uh, there's the themes of resurrection, which we'll hear in Romans 8, and there's themes in sl about slavery, which I'll talk about next week. There's a couple of key ideas. Verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. 
So he talks about the old self. Literally in the Greek, it's the old man. And for the old timers in the room, you might remember an old Petra song called Killing My Old Man. Does anyone know that song at all? No? Does anyone know who Petra is? You know, I don't feel too old and daggy then. I didn't grow up at Petra. I, was, I became a Christian at university, but the people I hung out with, I managed to relive all the experiences of 60s and 70s Christianity without having gone through it. Anyway, so it's past tense. We know that our old self was crucified. So if we participate in the benefits of Christ, if we are on team Christ, then our old self, our old nature, if you will, has been crucified with Christ. Done, finished with. But the other bits are possibilities. So that, in order that, the body of sin might be destroyed. Now it's kind of a curious phrase in a sense, and I don't think he's talking about the physical body per se. It's consistent with the idea that if we've, our old self has already been crucified, then the body of sin that's going to be destroyed is not literally our physical bodies, but it's, it's that idea of no longer being in sin, as Paul talked about earlier. One of the things I love about summer in the country uh, is the deafening noise that you encounter at times. People know what the deafening noise is coming from the trees? Cicadas. One of the things about cicadas is you see them, you don't see them, you hear them, but you do see the leftover bits, don't you? Uh, The skins that they shed. Now the thing about uh, an insect, of course, is that it has an exoskeleton, a hard outer shell. And in order to grow they need to shed that skin. Now, growing, of course, is just a product of their eating, but it's not something that they consciously do. They just do it, right? But they need to struggle a little bit to get rid of that external casing so that they can continue to grow. You think about it this way, therefore, that our old self has been crucified already, done for us, like the cicada that's growing. And so the whole idea of um, the body of sin being destroyed isn't really our work per se, but it does involve some kind of effort for us to shed that old skin. I must say, having grown up in the country, I'd much rather find an old cicada uh, skin than an old snake skin, but I've seen those as well. (laughs) It's the same picture. Another illustration might be, and I hope my insect illustrations don't bug you at all. I'm sorry. You get it every so often. My students get it every week. Is that, of course, of a butterfly. And this is maybe a little bit closer to the mark because, of course, a butterfly starts as a caterpillar and a caterpillar is just a big bag with a mouth and anus and a stomach. What a life. Um, And then they go into a cocoon and they literally remake themselves. There's a a literal, if you like, almost physical death. There's the death of the caterpillar as the cells reorganise themselves and out comes a beautiful butterfly. What a lovely Sunday morning illustration if you want to identify yourselves as a butterfly, right? So there's this process in between, and then they have to wriggle out of the cocoon. It's the same thing. So there's a a process of death that goes on, and then a bit of a struggle, and then new life. So that, if you like, is, is our struggle, that we need to engage in casting off the old and putting on the new, which is something that Paul says elsewhere. So to live a life that's consistent with our new status. The other thing that Paul says in verse 9 is he says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. That's the whole point of a resurrection body. Death no longer has dominion over him. It's like Jesus was accused of being a heretic by the Jewish people and by being a political figure, a Messiah revolutionary by the Romans. And so he's put to death and God says, not guilty. Here is a man who's been put to death as a sinner. 
without sin. Here is a man who's been charged as a political revolutionary, a violent figure, and has overcome sin and death in a non-violent fashion. And so he's been raised from the dead and can no longer die again. He's defeated death. That thing we talked about last week, uh, the thing that that, um, hangs over our head like the sword of Damocles that puts a, a punctuation mark in our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations and our meaning and our relationships and so on. And in Christ, the dominion of death has been overcome. And Paul says that we will be united with him in verse 5, in a resurrection like his. And as I say, we'll talk more about that in Romans 8. But what it means is that if Christ has overcome the dominion of death, so we will share in that in the future. That's something to look forward to. And the third key idea, of course, is therefore we are raised, uh, we are dead to sin but alive to God because we've been crucified, buried and been raised with him. So what does that mean? Well, he explains that in verses 12 through 14. And the link between uh, this passage and the next is, can I geek out theologically just for a minute here? Um, is verses 12 through 14 form a chiasm. So the Greek letter chi is like our, uh, the letter X, where the, the key thing is in the middle. And the key thing in the middle is in verse 13, uh, that we are those who have been brought from death to life. That's the key theological concept. And then the things that outflow from that are either side, which is that sin is not to exercise dominion in our lives, That's in verse 12 and verse 14. And then we're to present our members uh, as instruments, not of wickedness, but of righteousness. And there's my brief theological moment for those who enjoy those things. But so what Paul is now saying is that we're not under the dominion. Just as we're not under the dominion of death, neither are we under the dominion or the lordship of sin uh, because we're under grace. And as we talked about last week, not under the Jewish law either, which simply points out our sin. In other words, sin, if we're no longer under its dominion, it has no authority over us anymore. It has no right to dictate what we do, who we are to be. In fact, if you remember from last week, Paul says that we're meant to have dominion as the church. So what's that meant to look like? Well, it's interesting in the, I'm not sure what translation is we read this morning, but verse 12 says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. But it doesn't literally say that. So let's unpack that. In the NRSV, it says, um, therefore do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. A little bit more of neutral terminology. So what does this mean? It can also be translated simply as desire. And every time I use that word, I hear the U2 song in my head. But anyway, so we're not to be obedient to passions of literally our mortal bodies or our bodies of death, it says in the Greek, bodies that die. So is he critiquing desire itself? Am I not allowed to desire anything? Or is it our physicality, our mortal bodies? Is Paul some kind of dualist? You know, you've got physical things on one hand and spiritual things on the other. Are we better off being Amish? Well, there's a few things, points to make. Firstly, there are right objects of desire. So the word uh, translated here is desire. It's the, the naming word, the noun. But the verb, the related verb desire is used, for example, in Luke 22:15 where Jesus desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. Or in Philippians 1.23, Paul says that he desires to depart and be with Christ. 
So the very idea of desire itself is not necessarily a bad thing. There are right objects of desire and there are wrong objects of desire. There are also right and wrong expressions of desire. Think, for example, in, back in Genesis. I mean, we've been talking about sin and the fall, etc., 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 over the past couple of weeks. It goes back, of course, to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, 6, it says that Eve saw that the tree was to be desired for making one wise. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so clearly, desire there was a bad thing. But is it a bad thing to know the difference between good and evil? That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. So it wasn't her desire itself that was bad, but the way in which she desired, the way in which she grasped after it. If you like, it's a matter of timing. Perhaps the key, then, is that Paul is talking about the desires of bodies of death. And again, not desires of the physical body per se, but the aspect of us that's destined to death and destruction, which Paul's been talking about. So it's not all desire. So if we go back then to the thought of what what sin, and I said that the word sin basically means having a wrong aim, falling short of the glory of God, then maybe sin can also be expressed at aiming our desires in the wrong places and that there are good and worthy things to desire. First of all, the thing that we're meant to desire above all things, of course, is God, is it not? C.S. Lewis wrote uh, during the war, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so in this passage, C.S. Lewis is encouraging us not to desire too little, but to have greater desire. First and foremost, to desire after God. And not to be simply satisfied with distractions. It's interesting, though, it's worth pointing out that he wrote this, or gave the talk and then wrote it in 1942. He got married in 1956 and had been a bachelor all his life. That when he talks about being distracted with things like sex, he's you know in a bit of a dualistic mode. So what I want to affirm, both one at the same time, is that our ultimate desire should be for God, but that doesn't mean that our desire for other things are invalid or necessarily evil things. We'll get onto that uh, in a second. St. Augustine, of course, also said that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So there's an inner desire within us uh, to want after God. But there are a lot of things in the world that are worthwhile, that it's not necessarily sinful to, to want in, in the right ways. And I, a few years ago, I wrote a paper about the role that, that beauty plays in conservation and in something known as ecotheology. And I think there's a couple of concepts that are helpful here from that. The first thing is following John Calvin, that great reformer, is that we're to view good things like a mirror. So if something is true and noble and beautiful then it must reflect the nature and being of the one who is true and beautiful and who made that thing. So following on from that, we might say that we learn to desire God more by exploring the very concept of desire within ourselves, the way in which we desire the good things in this life. So food provides our needs, but Jesus says that man and woman does not live on by bread alone. So in learning to desire for food and exploring that and maybe fasting, we learn more about what it is to desire God. 
Seeing the beauty in a partner we're in relationship with might cause us to reflect upon the beauty of the face of God. So we learn to desire God more by desiring created things in the proper proportion. One of the things about that, though, of course, is that um, anyone who's ever looked in a mirror knows what they're looking at. They're looking at themselves. If you look in a mirror, you're not normally conscious of the fact that it's a mirror I'm looking at. Unless, you know, like me, occasionally you get to travel and you go to a new hotel and you think, oh, this is a really good mirror. I can actually see the stubble that doesn't get shaved normally when in the mirror at home. So we don't normally reflect upon the mirror. So the problem with that then, of course, is that we can reflect too much upon, listen to me right in context, we can reflect too much upon God and not enough on the thing that we're looking at that reflects God, if you know what I mean. So it, it's, a, it's a pretty lousy thing to spend your life with your marriage partner and say, you know, every time I look at you, I think of God. Well, you don't think about your spouse at all. And so the other illustration is following on from Bonaventure, who said that we're to view beautiful and good things in life like stained glass. Now, I I like church buildings. It's not to say I don't like meeting here, but I really do like church buildings and and stained glass. Have you ever been to an old church at night with stained glass window? Pretty dull, right? What's missing? Sunlight behind it. So you can only truly appreciate the beauty of stained glass if the sun is out. Which is to say then that the, th- the good things in life, which it's, it's genuinely, it's okay to desire, we can desire all the more and appreciate all the more if we understand that behind those things is the goodness of God. I mean, if so things are good in of themselves, but if there is no God, then you can deconstruct everything. And nothing means anything. Nothing means nothing, if you know what I mean. And so my desire for my wife, for example, is just reduced to selfish genes that need to reproduce themselves, and that's it. My desire to smell a beautiful flower, to to appreciate that beauty, means nothing because the flower didn't evolve to attract me. It evolved to attract a bee, an insect or a bird, to pollinate it. The concept of beauty, the concept of desire devolves into meaninglessness. But if everything in the world that's worth desiring, that has beauty that attracts us, only has meaning if it's a creation of a good creator. And so that's the light that shines through it. We can appreciate things all the more precisely for what they are. And again, we can learn in desiring the good things of life to desire God all the more. Again, Augustine nailed it when he said that every man, I'm sure he meant women as well, I'm sorry, Whoever, whosoever his condition desires to be happy. There is no man who does not desire this, and each one desires it with such earnestness that he prefers it to all other things. Whoever, in fact, desires other things, desires them for this end alone. And that's not a bad thing. So that's, if you like, the, the private or the personal application. It's okay to desire things. Paul's not dismissing desire per se, but we need to train our desires. We need to aim our desires appropriately. The other part of the passage is in verse 13. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, of course, there's a problem in translation from Greek to English, and part of the problem is that there's only one word in the Greek that means both righteousness and justice. 
and some Christians will focus on social justice and some will focus on personal righteousness and lose the spectrum of both. The word that's translated in wicked, as wickedness here in verse 13 and in the translations we got this morning as also wickedness actually means injustice. In fact, it's the name of a Greek goddess. So it's more than just our personal wickedness. It's the whole spectrum. And as I just said, the word righteousness means personal righteousness and issues of justice. And this word that's translated as instruments um, can also mean literally weapons. And so the parts of our bodies should not be weapons in the war for sin and injustice, but weapons for the war against sin and injustice. In other words, weapons for godliness and righteousness and holiness. Which means we need to go into training. So, and that's not easy, is it not? So I've been doing a martial art known as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for the past 16 years. And if you see me limping from time to time, it's a result of my long martial arts training and uh, a, um, a meniscus that's basically had it. But if I'm training for a competition, then I'm training 100, 110%. I'm going four or five times a week and rolling hard and training hard and, and cross-training and trying to lose weight to make my weight division and so on and so forth. I'm forging my body as a weapon for the... The battlefield, if you will. So Paul's saying here that our members, the parts of our mortal bodies, our hands and our minds and our feet and our other bits are all to be trained properly for proper use. Again, it comes back to the definition of sin, does it not? As we're not meant to aim over here, we're meant to aim over here, having properly trained desires and will. And because this idea of wickedness includes injustice and because the idea of righteousness includes both personal righteousness personal righteousness and injustice it means that we need to engage as christians with these broader issues and in fact we've sung a song about that this morning have we not let me give you some examples of what we can term structural evil or injustices do you know what your superannuation is invested in I went recently to a, a wonderful movie entitled Onote's Ark, which is about Onote Tong. He's the former president of Kiribati, and he's traveling the world, begging with world leaders to do something about climate change because his island is about a meter above sea level. And it was put on by an environmental film festival, and one of the short um, ads they put on before the, the main event was about superannuation. And it interviewed people who were interested in campaigning against slavery and climate change and who were vegetarian and vegan. And the interviewer was telling them what their superannuation was being used to fund. And you'd be surprised. Some Australian schemes actually are funding uh, the marketing and the trafficking of, of arms. Some uh, is in mining, in coal, etc. So anything that you might feel you personally identify with, your superannuation might be being spent on that. Um, I'm going to quote myself, which is rather pretentious, I know, but a few years ago uh, I was asked to speak as uh, the religious person at a climate change rally run by GetUp. And I said at the time, uh, in a world where I wear clothes made in Bangladesh, watch American movies on a Korean TV, and when I drive my Japanese car, I add gases that warm the whole planet, everyone is my neighbour. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus told a story about a man attacked by robbers to teach us that we are to love our neighbours when they are in need. So what about your lifestyle? What about the things that you purchase, the food that you eat? How does that contribute to climate change? And we heard this morning at length about how those who contribute the least 
are currently suffering the most. Well, what do we do about coal is good for humanity, free water for Adani, politicians who deny the basic science, or indeed the basic neoliberal con that says it's all about our consumer choices. Have you thought about what it is that you wear? Have you looked at the labels of the clothes that you buy recently and researched how much the people who made them for you get paid or the conditions under which they work? Do you wear ethical clothes? Does it even come into your consciousness? And last but not least, <laughs> our taxes pay for mandatory detention. Now, later on, uh, uh, probably sometime next year, we'll get a sermon series on uh, a sermon on Romans 13, and it talks about paying taxes, etc. And, and certain Christians will use that to tell us that we, we need to participate with government, regardless of what government does. But unavoidably, you and I are paying for children to be locked up in detention. What do we do about that? How do we unentangle ourselves? I'm listing all these issues because. I don't want to paint a simple picture about the systemic injustices that we're a part of, but we need to raise our consciousness, neither do we not, because Paul is telling us this morning that we're no longer under the dominion of sin. We're no longer controlled by sin. And it's easier, not really easy, but it's easier to focus on our personal righteousness. You can engage in self-reflection, etc. But how do we unentangle ourselves with a world that's sinful. Do we retreat like the Amish? Or do we present our bodies as weapons for righteousness and justice and take these things on? Thankfully, because we're not under law but under grace, it means that we're actually allowed to be gracious to ourselves and gracious to each other. There's nothing worse than a convert, is there not? I mean, I love new Christians because they're so enthusiastic about things, but those who are converted to, um, like, Who's the most self-righteous about alcohol or smoking? It's an ex-drinker and ex-smoker, right? Who's the most self-righteous about what they eat? There's a newly formed vegan. Uh, some of you may know Jonathan Cornford. He wrote a really good book on how our food system is broken. In the last chapter, he basically says, don't be a Pharisee. You find what it is that holds your passion, but don't spend the rest of your time then pointing the finger at everyone else who doesn't share precisely that. Because as I've outlined... There are a large number of issues to grab hold of, are there not? Where we as individuals and as a church or as in collaboration with organisations like TIER or the Renew Our World campaign can join together as an army, presenting our bodies as weapons of justice and righteousness. But don't in the process become sanctimonious. My issue, of course, is climate change, and I'll belt on at length to you about it. Uh, and I've written yet another book about it, etc., etc. And as you dig in, of course, it's not one single issue. And that's part of the problem, is it not, is you're becoming a Christian and you realise that uh, you're meant to be concerned about injustice and sin. And so you become concerned about everything because it's, there isn't one issue. But pick one or two things that you identify with and pursue those. So engage in regular self-examination and do that battle on the personal front. But we're not to stop there. There are many issues that we need to engage with. So we should be encouraged that we share in Christ's death because 
Our sinful natures have been put to death. We should be encouraged that we share in Christ's resurrection and have new life now and look forward to a resurrection from the dead in the future. And we should be encouraged that we have new life now, new natures, that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And being free from sin's power and authority, we should live as dead to sin and resist it wherever we find it and however we find it. Amen.